what's better in life than a bottle of wine, great food, and an amazing conversation? My name is Kate Sullivan, and I am the host of To Dine For. I'm a journalist, a foodie, a traveler with an appetite for the stories of people who are hungry for more. Dreamers, visionaries, artists, those who hustle hard in the direction they love. I travel with them to their favorite restaurant to hear how they did it. This show is a toast to them and their American dream. Thank you to the sponsors of To Dine For The Podcast, American National and Spiritless. To Dine For The Podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. For 115 years, American National has remained committed to helping people and communities make a real difference in their lives. American National supports great local community organizations led by the kind of people you hear about on To Dine For, people who are inspired to make a difference and inspire others in return. American National's philosophy is helping where it's needed helps us all. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write, and the states in which they're licensed, visit americannational.com dine. Spiritless supports the conscientious cocktailer who wants to live fully but drink differently. Their signature Kentucky 74 is a distilled non-alcoholic spirit for your favorite bourbon cocktails. It's zero alcohol zero guilt, and just 15 calories per serving. Whether you go completely spiritless or go halvesies with a foolproof bourbon to lower the ABV in your cocktail, you can get your bottle today at spiritless.com. Use promo code to dine for to get free shipping. Welcome to To Dine For The Podcast. I'm Kate Sullivan. Join me as we meet some of the world's most creative and fascinating minds at their favorite restaurant. On today's episode is financial expert and author, Farnoosh Tarabi. What are the experiences that I want? What are the things that I value? Well, how do I want to feel in my work, in my life personally? And, and then again, like how does the money that I make or will make support that? Or what is the money that I need to make to, to support that, to feel that sense of richness? Farnoosh Tarabi is a financial expert, author, and host of the financial podcast, So Money. Her books include You're So Money, Live Rich Even When You're Not. And When She Makes More, which tackles real-life money issues that young people, especially women, face every day. Her goal is to bring a richness to everyday life, no matter your budget. Today, we're dining at Bijan's in Brooklyn, a favorite of Farnoosh's. You could have chosen so many restaurants in New York City, in Brooklyn, where you used to live, but you chose Bijan's. Tell me why. It's a special restaurant. We live just a few steps away from here, my husband and I. We bought our first apartment in Brooklyn in 2011, and we immediately discovered this restaurant. It was almost like a sign. I'm Iranian, so uh, we were really excited to... It's really why we moved to New York and then to Brooklyn was for the access to all the diversity and uh, wherever you go, you feel like you're home yes. in New York, yes. whether you're Mexican or Iranian or, you know, African-American, there's there's something for everybody here. And it was just a really warm and inviting restaurant. It's kind of got that Persian fusion going on. Mm-hmm. So it's not 100%. You've talked to the owner. You yes. Know, it's not like my parents Iranian restaurant growing up in Shiraz but it's it, it meets you where you're at you yes. know where you, I've, I feel like my life now is a blend of Persian influences American influences Bijan's of Brooklyn is nestled into a Borum Hill block with so many other restaurants just steps away 
There is a roaring fire inside and also outdoor dining available. It is small and it is cozy and serves up Persian flavors and American classics. Here's the owner, Jahan. My son's name is Bijan. Oh. I call it American Mediterranean with Persian spices. <laughs> it's a very cozy place. People really feel at home when they come here. You know, we have a lot of regulars that come here from the neighborhood. And they've been very supportive, especially through the, co- the whole COVID. And, uh, you know, been very helpful. It's been very difficult times. And uh, I have that personality. I don't just give up on anything. We just lived down the road or down the street. We had two kids, our family, and we always, this was a mainstay in our lives, this restaurant. In we, a way, it feels like home, right? Very much, yeah. yeah. And I've since moved, but I, um, you know, uh, miss it very much. And it's only been, you know, a few, you know, six months, but it's, it was a, pan, it's, we're in a pandemic. Right. Thank, Thank you. you. Oh, oh, wow. Thank you. Oh, salad with Oh, already. Oh, that oh is God, amazing. That's, perfect. that's yeah. what you wanted, right? Yeah, exactly. Oh, fantastic. Let's talk about your very first book and how you really kind of broke in and made a splash. And it was, you know, how to be rich, even if you're not, <laughs> right? <laughs> right, when you're Which broke. is a great title. Yeah. And what, where did the inspiration come from that and why did you start there? Well, I was already a financial journalist before I wrote the book. But I found myself often writing for people who were my parents' age, writing about mutual funds and, you know, retirement plans and tax codes, which look all relevant to any age group. But I felt as though there was this big underserved market, my market, me, uh, how do how do me and my friends who are all, uh, you know, coming to New York, bright eyed, bushy tailed, ambitious how are we going to make it work, yeah. really, yeah. Uh, considering we might have student loans, we have cost of rent, living, and I was making $18 an hour. And I had figured out a few things for myself, but I also felt like I had access to all this expert advice given my job. You know, I could just call up, uh, you know, people at the Federal Reserve or people at, you know, real estate experts and credit experts. And I thought maybe there's something here to say that hasn't been said, which is how to manage your money when you're young from the perspective of a young person who's doing it, but also learning at the same time, who can give you access to her professional world. And that was the first book. And it came out in a recession, the last recession, <laughs> best time and worst time right. to be writing a financial book. I was going to say book. perfect timing, actually. It was and it wasn't. But I think in the net of it was that it was great for my career. Um, it, it gave me a platform because ironically, I also lost my job in the recession, but also had a book at the same time. Mm. So it was my parachute. Mm. It it saved me in ways that I wasn't expecting. I thought, oh, I'll write a book. My mom will be happy. Mm -hmm. I'll get a couple speaking gigs. And it ended up being the thing that saved my professional career. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because, you know, media world was contracting and as as were many well it it made you an expert Mm -hmm. in an area where there weren't many women experts right right and i i love the idea that when you think about like especially women in finances you talk about you know generating wealth and you talk about savings Mm -hmm. but you don't always talk about value Mm-hmm. And I feel like one of the things that really defines you is that you're constantly talking about the value of things as opposed yeah. to the cost. Right. Because what is valuable to one person is different from an, uh, from another thing. So what makes someone feel wealthy, mm-hmm. how to be rich, mm-hmm. is completely different depending on the woman. 
And I think that is at the heart of what needs to be talked about yeah. when you're talking about finances. Well, thanks for putting it that way. I never really uh, <laughs> think I characterized it in that way, but I think you're right. I think I've always tried to, first of all, just make everyone feel part of the conversation. So whether you're making a little bit of money or a lot of money, we can all talk about money. And we all have things to say and we all have things that we value. And I thought when I, when I, one of the other reasons I wanted to get in this space and write the book was I did feel there was a lot of judgment in the space. Like, oh, how could you spend, you know, all that money on shoes or trips or whatever? And I think that's an immediate way to just shut someone out of the conversation totally. and make them feel bad. It's already an emotional topic. And then yes. on top of that, you're made to feel like you're making bad choices. They're personal choices. Totally. And people get upset mm-hmm. talking. Money is the number one thing you're not supposed to talk right. about. So for you to be a part of this conversation, leading a conversation on a taboo topic, it must it must have been a fascinating you know, ride. And, and I one time, I remember when the book came out, uh, I think it was U.S. News World and Report, they said, wouldn't it be fun if you just shared us like how you spend money in a day? Like talk about what you spent in a week, your, your spending diary. And so I said, sure, like an idiot. Um, so I wrote down how much I, and I remember I'm living in New York. I'm also making, you know, at this point, you know, a good salary, got a book advance. So I'm not eating ramen noodles. And right. so I was being very honest, but also, you know, I was showing how I was saving money, but I think I spent $11 on hangers and someone, it went viral, like financial <laughs> expert spends $11 on clothing hangers. And I was like, I thought that was a deal. You know, <laughs> I, I got 15 hangers out of that, you know, and so I, I'm on the receiving end of it a lot of times. Too. How do you handle that? You know, because I imagine there is a lot of judgment mm-hmm. in not only, um, you know, what you put out in the world, but how people interpret what you're saying. Sure. I think we've come a long way too. I think, um, today, if I were to share that I'm spending $11 on hangers, I think the, I like to think that the world would be more patient with that and, and more uh, understanding of like the context, you know, as opposed to just taking that one purchase and internalizing it and saying, I would never do that. Why should you? I think that my, my audience has really grown up with me and mm-hmm. I've been really transparent about the choices I've made and how I define a rich life and how it's different than other, somebody else. And so I think now when I share things, it's understood that like this was a conscious decision and but I also share my mistakes. I mean, I'm, I put it all out there and I show that I'm imperfect. But I think at the end of the day, I also show how I'm being responsible. So I always say, like, you know, eat your vegetables before you eat your dessert. In the financial world, it's the same thing, right? right. You, you save first for the important things, the boring things, right? Let's talk. Let's just be honest. Like retirement's like a million years away. We don't really want to. It's not exciting, but it's we know we have to do it. And so if you've taken care of these um, foundational things, then sure, go ahead and buy whatever you want, no judgment. And so I think people trust that by now I'm doing those foundational things. So right. when I say I spent, I'm going on this trip or I bought a house in a pandemic, you know, but I take them through it. I'm like, look, here's how I did it. Right. You know, here's, there how was, I made it here's work. the strategy. Right. How do you define a rich life? Fulfillment, you know, and in all buckets of all pockets of life. So it's first... I always say like not really thinking about the money at first, but finding out what's the feeling that you want in life. What are the experiences that you want? What do you want your legacy to be? Your living legacy and your legacy when you're gone. Um, And how then can your money support that? You know, what are your priorities? What are your needs? We used to just talk about it much more simplistically, like needs versus wants. And then, you know, save and then you'll get rich. 
Um, but now we think of it more as, I think, what are the experiences that I want? What are the things that I value? Well, how do I want to feel in my work, in my life personally? And, and then again, like how does the money that I make or will make support that? Or what is the money that I need to make to, to support that, to feel that sense of richness? Um, as you have evolved uh, from a financial journalist to an author and your platform has grown, how has your view of money changed? I'm so much more grateful, I think, than I than I was. I think we all, I think with age comes a sense of deeper gratitude for life, right? You live life and you realize how bountiful and abundant life is. And I think that my appreciation for money has deepened in that way. Um, especially now with everything going on, you feel really lucky about the choices that your money can afford you. I think that's the other thing too, is sort of I've framed it more for myself as like, I want money not just to have, but to have choices. Like not just money equals freedom, but really the day to day, it's allowing you to have choices. So I have the money, so I have the choice to move in a pandemic. Mm -hmm. I have the choice to provide things for my kids. I have the choice to provide for my parents. You could also, you know, look at a lot of, you know, movements in the world, like the Me Too movement. A lot of people might not have thought about money as a pivotal player in that movement but it really was you know women who were not able to leave their jobs out of fear of retribution because they had a harassing boss or like a lot of these women would say you know I didn't leave because I didn't have the financial security to fall back on I had to stay in this job I had to stay and stick around for money is freedom money is freedom it's choices and and it shows up in not just when you're making purchases but when you're deciding on your own personal freedom too I've seen it more and more play out in my life and in others' lives. And it's always been a tool. It's it, it's the best tool in terms of uh, it's a tool that you can really carve. You know, you can sharpen it. It's like we're all dealt different tools, if you will. You know, some have better tools than others when, they, when they're brought into the world, richer. Uh, but I think it's the sort of thing that um, you can really personalize. I'm also learning more and more about how money, uh, especially after this summer with the race uh, reckoning that our nations had, re-reckoning, and just how much of a role um, racism plays in prohibiting people from becoming wealthy and achieving wealth in this country. And I did a whole series on the podcast, my podcast about that this summer, to more educate myself and listeners on like the roots of racism and how it has shown up for people in people's lives, black people's lives, as they've tried to do everything from secure a mortgage to get a job to, you know, start a business, get a loan. And um, that fight continues. Right. Not only with race, but also gender. And I know you wrote an entire book about when Mm -hmm, a woman mm -hmm. makes more Mm -hmm. and the disparity and some of the issues that she goes through when she makes more. What are they? Um, and, And... have they changed since you've written the book or do you think they remain the same? Well, I still get a lot of questions from female breadwinners. Just, you know, this week I got a couple coming in and I I thought maybe by now we would have uh, fought the good fight, but I think that the work continues. So I initially wrote the book because I was about to get married. I was wanting to really write another book in the personal finance space for women this time specifically. And I was looking at all the titles and Felt like a lot had already been said. Yeah. You know, what am I going to really add to the conversation? And so I went back to what my 11th grade English teacher would always tell us when we had writer's block. And she'd say, write what you know. 
Just write what you know. Don't try to write something that you think other people the might. The old adage. You know, write yeah. what you know. So I said, what do I know? What do I know in my life that happens to be at the intersection of being a woman and managing money? And I thought, well, there is this sort of like elephant in the room, uh, which is that I make more than my fiance. And I don't think my family's very happy about it. Mm. I also feel like I don't really want to shout that from the rooftops. <laughs> and I want to know why I feel such insecurity around this thing that I should only be celebrating. Mm. Because I did everything I was supposed to do. Right. 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 <laughs> Kate, I like went to college, went to grad school, asked for the raise, tucked money away in my 401k, bought an apartment, bought a second apartment. It's a fascinating topic. Married for love. Yeah. It's a fascinating right? topic. I thought I won the lottery. And yet, I felt very lonely at the top with that, with all Did of those accomplishments. Did you feel like your fiancé resented you for making no, money? No, never, which is why we got married. I right. think that was part of the... <laughs> <laughs> that helped. Um, it was it was ironically not really from him that I felt this uh, insecurity. We talked openly about it. He was, you know, he's just always was my biggest, has been my biggest cheerleader. But it was more the uh, external factors of parents traditional parents um, doubting that a woman who would eventually maybe go on to have kids and want a family could also be the breadwinner like how does that work interesting there was also you know this is the social circles of uh, going out to dinner with friends and the men would cover the bill when the bill would come and it's like well we don't really have a you know my husband and I my, my fiance at the time we weren't like well when we go out to eat like you're gonna pay right you know it was but it would show up. It would show up in these moments. And um, I think people just didn't know what was going on behind the scenes. And I kind of didn't want them to because I just didn't think they would understand. When I first told my friends that I was writing this book, they were shocked. They were like, really? How do you, how do you even make money? Like, how do, you, how do you possibly make more than your boyfriend or husband? And I remember going on a job interview and the, uh, the man, boss, the guy was interviewing me. I told him I was writing this book. And he goes, what does your husband do? <laughs> as if like he was homeless or something and I was like this is how society thinks of men who make less than their wives right. they think you're useless right. they think how could you possibly have a, well, a respectful there's job a, there's a lot wrapped up in ego with men yeah. and there's a lot of uh, a sense of finding worth from what they do and the money they make. I think this is a universal truth. I, I mean, I don't think I'm saying anything controversial. No. I really believe that. Absolutely. I mean, for me personally, I, um, you know, was an evening news anchor in Chicago, one of the largest cities. You know, I definitely made more money than my uh, fiancé yeah. and then husband. And then I got fired. So I went from being the bread... I've, I've been on both sides. I've been the breadwinner. And I've also been the one who isn't the breadwinner and I it happened very quickly for me mm -hmm. and so I I can I can really relate that this is a a hot topic and it, it definitely affects obviously it's, it's very personal right it affects different people and a lot of men are fine with it and a lot of have a serious problem yeah. so it but women too okay you know women um I interviewed a lot of women and a lot of men for this book and some of the women would just flat out admit like I don't like being the breadwinner, mm. you know? I don't wanna have this, it's too much pressure because here's the thing. When, in, in general, what I, would, I discovered, and it, the studies also point to this too, is that when she makes more, um, she's not only at the forefront of, the, of making the money and her career is probably also very busy, she comes home, she's still at the forefront of the childcare yes. and the house care right. 
and all the other emotional labor that women take on. And so it's, she is leading this double life. It gets to be too much. And so- Double life. Right. That's what I'm leading now. I'm leading a double <laughs> life. Thank you for putting it that this way. This duplicitous double <laughs> life, you know, um, it was much easier in the 50s, frankly, I mean, for the men, because they would just, just, it's not, it's not a just thing. It's just that they, you know, they were, it's like the roles were more defined right. and more singular and more exclusive to departments of right. like men will make the money <laughs> at the job that requires them to leave the house and women will stay home and do all, all the other things, yeah. everything else and not get a paycheck. It wasn't a great setup, but it was uh, simpler times, maybe you could argue. Now there's not really defining lines and and as humans i think we like to have rules we like to we like we like to know what the boundaries are we like sure. to know what our expectations are we like to know how we're going to be uh graded you know because that's the thing when men aren't making the money sometimes they're like well what is my role right am i doing how a do good i job? define right how do i define all myself? men want to be it's like a good husband right. good provider but if they're not providing in that traditional way that they're been groomed to do and think that they, they have to do, it's a, it's a very unsettling feeling. Right. We'll have more from our delicious meal in just a minute. But first, thank you to our sponsors. To Dine For the podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. There's a funny thing about most insurance commercials, whether they feature lizards or birds or funny cartoon characters. It seems like they want you to think about anything but insurance. American National, on the other hand, has real local agents who get to know you so they can help you reach better decisions about your insurance to make sure you're protecting what matters most to you. American National agents are part of your community. They're your neighbors. So whether it's solutions for your home, your small business, your farm, or your life, you can count on your local American National agent to make sure you get the discounts you deserve and the protection you need without paying for extras you don't. With American National, you get an ally, not just a web page. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write in the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com slash dine. If you're like me, there are times when you want to feel like you're having a fancy cocktail, but you don't actually want the alcohol. So I love Kentucky 74 from Spiritless. It's a distilled, non-alcoholic spirit for your favorite bourbon cocktails, but with just 15 calories per serving and none of the guilt. You can pre-order your bottle today at spiritless.com. Use the promo code to dine for to get free shipping. Now back to the table. I would imagine that when you're talking about money with anyone, it is a direct reflection of how they grew up and their values. It's one of my first questions on my podcast. It's like, tell me about your mother. No, oh, tell me. Or no, it's really more like, tell it's me like about a therapy it. session. Yeah. <laughs> you're a therapist. I always say, what's an experience about around money or related to money that you had growing up that still you carry with you carry that memory today for whatever reason? Could be a positive experience. It could be sometimes traumatic. I remember my friend Susie. Well, number I'll never forget. She said, you know, I grew up in London, very poor, food stamps, the whole nine yards, and every day in school I would have to get up in front of class and accept my meal ticket from my teacher. And not oh. only that, when I would go to pay for my meal, I'd have to sign this book so all the kids behind me knew I didn't have money for lunch. Wow. I mean, I want to cry because right. I remember those kids. In, and and she said, you know, so one day I went to my teacher, my principal, she was maybe nine or 10, and said, can I propose a change? 
you know who I am. You know I need this. So let's just create like a a different system yes. where I don't have to that sign. I'm shamed that I'm not shamed. Yeah. And I don't know what it was that they created, but they immediately implemented it. What and, a smart young right? woman, yeah. I mean, she's gone on to uh, Susie Moore, if you're uh, interested. She's written books, and uh, she's a confidence expert. She's oh. like a positivity expert. So she, from a very young age, just took the reins. She was like, I know a, a more positive solution yeah. to this. But it, it really... Emotional intelligence right there. Uh, you know, but I think she's a great example, too, because she was born and raised in... Uh, with single mom, poor, and I think it's not a coincidence that so many people I interview who grow up to be really successful, who experienced economic insecurity, who experienced being hungry at home or moving and be living in shelters or even just seeing their parents fight about money, they, the best case scenario is that they grow up kind of using that as fuel for themselves right. to not ever get into that situation. I noticed that with all the guests on To Dine For because they have reached a certain level of success and I've found that hunger or scarcity or lack is the greatest motivator and to, when you see some of these people have reached un- uncommon success that really the tights it had to have come from somewhere yeah. and you know what it is it's like they're not afraid anymore because they know what they know what broke is and they're like well I've experienced it I survived it I'm going to take the risk right Oh, that's interesting. They've yeah. been rejected. They've been rejected. They're not afraid of what's on the other side because they've experienced it. And if they have to experience it again, well, what's, well, you know, they survived it once. Well, you've been in the trenches of hearing people's money stories mm-hmm. and personal stories and therapy. So I'm really curious as to, you know, what has shocked you? What mm-hmm. has really surprised you the <laughs> most over the past few years, not only writing your book, but also doing your podcast? I mean, I'm... I, I love the show. I'm selfishly doing it because I think for me it's an opportunity to constantly learn and be shocked uh, in a good way. So, I mean, there's I've done over a thousand episodes. So, wow, um, that's amazing. One of the fun ones I like to share is, um, so everybody knows Tim Gunn, right? Yeah. Co-host of Project Runway, America's fashion sweetheart. Like, he's such a sweet man. Um, came on my podcast and talked about how the first couple seasons of Project Runway, he did not earn money. and He it did was, it for free? He did it for free. He really? didn't think to ask for <gasps> money because he didn't think that that's, it was a money-making role because he was uh, being himself. <laughs> so it was publicity in his mind. He yeah, thought he, he was thought getting great publicity. he was giving publicity. the school some publicity. And it wasn't until couple seasons in I think at that point they've been nominated for Emmys and the whole thing and he was at a GLAAD event uh, and ran into well not ran into an agent saw him a talent agent went up to him and said hi I'm a big fan who represents you and he said I don't know what that means what are you talking about (laughs) and the agent said here's my card call me on Monday so ever since then he's been making money but I just thought that was... Well, that floors me, so I can see yeah, why it would floor yeah, you. Wow. Yeah. Well, because, you know, we always say, like, make sure you ask for a raise, or he didn't even ask for a salary. Wow. You know, he didn't ask for anything. And I think it just shows you, like, if you don't ask, you don't get. Right. Uh, so that's one. And then just recently, I had a guest on the show who wrote a book called Die With Zero, Bill Perkins. Okay. And he's a guy who's made his fortune in uh, on Wall Street, and he's pretty much retired now, and you know, sails the world and does podcast interviews apparently. And um, but he had a really interesting book come out about 
why he wants to encourage everybody to not die with an inheritance for their kids. Now that sounds pretty terrible, right? Like, (laughs) oh my God, you're the most selfish person on the planet. But I think the more I learned what he was talking about, the more it really resonated with me. And I have two little kids and all I want for them is to, you know, have a better life than I did and I think that's every parent's wish sure. but obviously not raise brats but I his his theory is look the average age of someone receiving an inheritance is 60 years old mm. why give a 60 year old money that they could have used 10 15 20 years ago when they were in better health maybe or really needed it to start the business that they never did so is he basically telling people to spend the money now yeah he is (laughs) which that flies in the face of saving right it does but yeah so there's a fine line right so i i took that advice and i was like i'm gonna make sure that if i share this which i did uh, i wrote a column about it that i give people like the steps right so they're not die with negative zero (laughs) negative money you don't want to die in debt although some people think that's okay i don't um but you know how do you balance truly living your life to the fullest with all the experiences and the giving that you want to do in your lifetime but still being uh not playing too close to the edge yes. right what it really does at the end of the day encourage people to do is to be more uh conscientious and conscious proactive with their money mm-hmm. as opposed to this other you know sort of track that a lot of people get on which is going on autopilot earning just to earn saving just to save and then not really experiencing life, just experiencing work and then death and then having your children sort of inherit that. But a lot of times I get so many questions from adult children who are like, my great aunt passed away or my father just passed away and I don't know what to do with this money. You know, I don't know what he wanted me to do with the money. Mm. I feel like, I don't know, I I know what I want to do, but is it the right thing? So there's a lot of sort of uncertainty and maybe some guilt and uh so much sorrow yeah and and um so this philosophy would involve talking to your kids throughout their lifetime about your plans right so that they know (laughs) maybe it'll get your kids motivated to actually think about how they could invest that money now in a way that is you know healthy and and and, because yeah if you're going to save money for your kids and give it to them when they're 60 why not give it to them when they're 40 and they can at least invest it you you strike me as someone who's who is very fiscally not only competent but also conservative. So I was wondering like what would be a splurge in mm-hmm. Farnoosh's terms? Oh my gosh. Vacations. Vacations. Yeah, experiences. I liked flying, you know, maybe not with my kids, but if my husband and I have traveled, you know, first class, yes. business class. Um but I you know, I'm pretty conservative when it comes to things for myself a lot of the times. Like, But I, I do invest in things that I think can be fruitful for my family. So if it's like a tutor for my kids or experiences for them. or Well, I see. I, I follow you on Instagram. Yeah. And I love when you do your... Um fashion comparisons like when you get a deal and you you, you say yeah. I think this is a great deal I do love it yeah, and I think, I think that's what I think everyone has a thrill of a bargain right and well people all those see. YouTube channels right where people just open boxes of things that they got on Amazon nope. or H&M or whatever I'm not there yet but I have had some pent-up spending desires right from with March right yes. and finally I'm like okay for our closet really needs a, a little bit of a just a revival I will tell you, I've really enjoyed not buying. Yeah. 
For me, it's been, um, you know, my, my years as a news anchor where I had to spend all this money on clothing because it was part of the job. Mm-hmm. I, lo- I have loved wearing the same thing yeah. and, and, and really having a, because we're in a pandemic, no right. one can judge me. And I've just loved that not only the savings aspect of mm-hmm. it, but I love the Steve Jobs black turtleneck sense the, of the like uniform. The, the uniform yeah. that I don't have. To, it's like something about my life it's I don't have to think about. It's called decision fatigue. And yes. you know, I, I've, um, I did this show for CNBC called Follow the Leader. Mm-hmm. I got the chance to interview some incredible founders and billionaires and just like be a fly on the wall. And do you know John Paul DeJoria? Oh, sure. Paul Mitchell. Yeah. Uh, does he wear the same thing tequila. every day? He does. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, he wears like, you know, his uh, black, black and black and uh, ponytail. Like he just, for him, it's it's one less decision. He eats the same thing also every day. There's, now there, I gotta draw yeah, the line. Like, Cause you know, I love my food. He has a personal chef, so okay. it's not like boring, but right. he has like the same menu every week. Cause I think for him, he's like, I, you know, I don't, you have to, you don't have to wait till you're rich and a billionaire to do this. No. I think that there's a lot of merit in re- streamlining the the decisions in your life because so many of us have a hard time making decisions, even the simplest decisions. Decision, uh, what do they call it? paralysis, right? Analysis paralysis. I had a girlfriend in college who couldn't pick ice cream in an ice cream shop. I, I've already picked my ice cream. I've eaten my ice cream. I've moved on. She's still at the counter like, can I try the pecan? I'm like, just no. try the, eat, order the pecan. <laughs> if you didn't like it, bad on you. I feel you on that one. I definitely do. <laughs> Um, what is the one thing everyone should be doing to generate or increase wealth that we don't Two think things. about? Yeah. yeah. Earning an extra income stream. Okay. Yes. Ask for the raise at work, please. But I think you're, you know, at, at work you get maybe like a 10% raise, 20% raise if it's been a really good year. If you earn an extra income stream, you can 50% your income, mm. right? Because you Are you talking about a side hustle? A side hustle. You know, whether that's starting small and like just selling stuff around your house. People, by the way, are buying used things like there's no tomorrow. Like a Poshmark, eBay business. Or Facebook Marketplace. I sold so much furniture mm-hmm. this summer. And, you know, if you have the bigger aspirations of starting a business, starting small and just getting a flavor for sales, whatever you're selling is an opening into people's psychology. Mm-hmm. And you're going to get really good at marketing and pricing and strategy. And you can take that from your, you know, garage sale business over to like an actual brick and mortar or an actual online e-commerce business. Um, so, you know, experimenting with that is never a bad thing. Okay. And then I would say, of course, investing where to this day, I'm still shocked at just how much more I can make in the market than any other kind of investment. You know, I've thought about paying down my mortgage. I just got a 3% interest rate on this new mortgage, which is, which is unbelievable. And you know, I have some friends who don't have mortgages and I'm like, oh, must be nice. But also I'm like, no, because I have such a small mortgage payment, I can then put more in the stock market. Right. And I'm not saying I know where the market's going, but I know over like the next 20 years, I'm, historically speaking, I will do much better than the 3% interest I might save paying down my mortgage. At some point I like to do both, mm-hmm. you know, maybe start putting extra payments towards the principal. But when you're borrowing at such a low rate, Debt, we have such a, a distaste for debt in this country for good reason. I mean, no, I don't wish debt upon anybody, but there's good debt and there's bad debt. If you have a 3% interest rate on a loan and 
on the other side of the equation, you don't have much going on with your investments. Maybe you don't have a rainy day savings. Take advantage of that. Don't pay that down aggressively. Use the extra money you have to get better on these other on these other variables. Be strategic about where your money is and the buckets that it's yeah. in. Yeah. What is the one thing you wish most people knew about money that they don't? Wow. I wish that people knew that they deserved it. You know, I think that in our culture and maybe a lot globally, there is this caricature of the rich person who's evil and greedy and is up to no good and doesn't care for humanity. And I think that that leaves people thinking that they're not they're I'm not that person right. and so I don't want money because money's going to make me into that person wow. money only makes you more of who you are mm, so remember that if you're greedy you can be greedy when you're poor right. you know you're not sharing your dessert with anybody that person becomes rich and they show it shows up the greed shows up in other ways but if you are, and I think everyone listening to your show is, you know, a generous, good-hearted, positive thinker, uh, when you become wealthy, I think that, again, if money is just a tool and you are still you, then it's a tool to make you who you are even on a bigger scale, mm. more generous, more giving, more thoughtful, more creative. Uh, so I wish that message to get out there more. And, and for women listening, uh, you deserve to be rich. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's fantastic. You need actually to be rich because right. you're going to live longer than men. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we get paid less at work, so we need to do all the things more. We need to invest more, uh, you know, and uh, earn more as if we can. So, my dad used to say that you know you can do a whole lot more good with money than without <laughs> it. And really, it's a lot true. of things like that. I love it. You know, yeah. it's true. And I I've said this, and people disagree. You know, but I think that that's okay. Um, but as I've experienced it, money only makes you more of who you are. Mm, yeah. Very good. As you've had a chance to really think over, you know, like the past decade of all of your interviews and research and writing, what do you want your legacy to be? Well, um, hmm. you know, I want to be known as somebody who helped people live their version of the good life mm-hmm. and who, you know, helped her family and her community get a leg up, uh, if they can, through education, through resources. I've, uh, you know, I just turned 40 this year. I'd like to do more for others now. If I've, you know, I've been pretty investing in myself a lot and I want to invest in others. I want to invest in businesses. I want to invest in communities. I've been, I started an equity scholarship fund through the podcast. So just, just keeping my, more, my ear to the ground more and seeing like, how else can I help? Because all these years later, I have not just developed some thoughts around money and a strategy in books, but also a platform with an audience. So if I am believing what I preach, which is that money is um, something that we should all have access to and the literacy we should all have access to, and that there are certain systemic issues preventing people from getting access and getting education, then I want to help move that needle forward. I want to use the platform to say things that, you know, maybe I wouldn't have said 10 years ago because um, we weren't necessarily talking about race and money in the same breath, but now we are, and I think we should, and, and maybe I've lost a couple followers because of it, but it's okay. 
It strikes me that you are not motivated by money. Ironically, not motivated by money at all. Is not that really. am, I, am I reading you right? Well, I yes and no. I mean, I um, not that you're not smart about money. Yeah, I, I definitely get you're smart about money. But what's at the heart of helping what, people? Yeah, yeah. Just I wanna. I'm that girl on the street that if you're lost, I hope you find me because I love giving directions. <laughs> I will give you my iPhone to call your, you know, whoever you're. I mean, I, I um. I do. I mean, you if want you, to guide people financially. Yeah, and, and someone actually, someone read my. Uh, there's a woman that uh, you should follow her. Money and mimosas. I'm, I'm going to promote her. She um, re- reads people's financial. She does financial readings, and so she asks you for like your date of birth, what time of day were you born, what city. She can map out where the stars were that moment, and. I mean, maybe she was just, you know, trying to uh, please me, but I think she wasn't. I think she really did it objectively. And it said that I was basically born on, I was put on this planet to do this, like helping people with their money. Do you Um, think you're living in your purpose? I think so. It, it wasn't like I, it, you know, if you ask like 10 year old you are news, furnished, you're pretty close. Like, nobody wakes up going like, I can't wait to be a financial author. Um, but I think you, you grow up wanting, you gravitate towards service. You know, I went to journalism school because I wanted to educate people. And like, I think that information is, um, is power. And, uh, but I thought, what is the sort of information that people are lacking big time especially young people especially women especially minorities and it's money money education where it's been often billed as it's been marketed to men by men white men typically um and there was real lack there it's an entirely different set of circumstances for women it really is yeah. across the board thank you Furnish. thanks welcome. for taking thank me here to Bijan. this me. is so fun welcome to brooklyn yes yes thank you thanks for listening to to dine for the podcast for more information on the show, the guests, and the podcast, head to todine4tv.com. You can find us on Instagram at todine4tv and Facebook at todine 4 with Kate Sullivan. Thanks to the sponsors of todine 4 the podcast, American National and Spiritless. Special thank you to producer and sound editor John Golner. To the loyal followers of this program, cheers, stay hungry, and stay inspired. I'll see you back at the table soon. 